Hello and welcome to Scots Whiskey Explorers, a podcast where we discuss everything there is to discuss about whiskey. I'm Stuart and I'll be joined by Peter on each episode where we will ask the questions and seek out the answers that are prompted by our love of whiskey. If you want to know more about how we came to be making this podcast, please have a listen to the season one trailer. In season one, we will be focusing on the fundamentals of single malt Scotch whisky production. Everything from barley to fermentation to maturation will be examined and explored in exhaustive detail. If you'd like to know more about Scots Whiskey Explorers, or if you'd like to get in touch to leave comments or suggestions, please go to www.scotswhiskeyexplorers.com. You can also find us on Twitter at Whiskey Scots. Thank you for listening to Scots Whiskey Explorers. We hope you enjoy it. Now, please sit back, relax, pour yourself a dram and enjoy our conversation about barley. Hordium vulgari. Oh, superb. Did you practice that pronunciation? <laughs> no, just luck. So, uh, yeah, here we go. Listen, um, super excited. Scots, Scots Whiskey Explorers. Series one, episode one. Can't believe it. Aye. It's not all fun and games. We're here to be serious and educate ourselves and get um, stuck into some serious content. I've been doing a bit of homework. I know you have too. Yeah. Um, so barley. Barley is what it's all about. Yeah. Ingredient uh, number one of three. Can't do without it. Got to have it. And interesting in doing, doing a bit of background reading, how there's, there are two schools of thought. One says, it's just barley. Yeah. And the other says, it's really important. <laughs> I was thinking the very same thing. And before I came through and we hit record, I was like, oh, let me grab some books just so I can open up the books and just quote them. So uh, there's one that sticks in my mind from the Whiskey Treasury. If you've got a copy of that book, you can turn to it. You can turn to uh, the barley entry and the very last sentence of barley entry is the barley only influences the whiskey in respect of the quantity of alcohol it yields. Okay. Written by a keeper of the quake, apparently. Yeah, and therein lies the conundrum. I hope that we can unpick in the process of our magnificent research, in-depth thinking. Yeah. I think it might take a considerable amount of exploring to to get to the bottom of that one because there seems to be two very divergent ways of thinking as you say that on one hand the 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 distiller just wants the barley to have the highest possible potential yield of of alcohol and there doesn't seem to be any um real consideration of what flavor characteristics the barley might bring and that's even before we get to discussing where the barley is grown and then on the other hand, there's people who are saying the barley is everything. The barley is, you know, that's what gives you all your flavour. If you, if it's not about the barley, why don't you just stick neutral spirit in your oak casks and enjoy that? So there's a divergence of thinking. Yeah, and I think also it's not just a divergence of thinking around barley per se. There's, there seems like a whole different way of or an emerging way of thinking about the whole making of whiskey process that pays a lot more attention to detail. More recently, we got a, 
well, there's been a lot of attention paid to casks. Yeah. The quality of wood that the whiskey's matured in. Sure. And I, I, I don't see anything exceptional or out of the ordinary then about paying attention to the other ingredients in, in the process. Absolutely. Uh, some are maybe a little bit, well, well, maybe when we come to this, we'll, we'll unpick it in a different way. But certainly, it's not that long ago you could read very romanticised notions about, oh, and the water flows over the peat and the water gathers the peat from the peat moss and it arrives in our, you know, our great store tanks and then we steep the barley with the peaty water. And I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm ramping that up for for a bit of fun, really. But I think there's a sense that there's two schools. There's two schools going on, I suppose. There's, there's an older school, slightly more romanticised, compared to maybe a more modern take that involves paying particular detail, att- attention to detail, I should say, as to what is actually going on in in the process. I, th- I think that's that's worth pointing out, and that's maybe something we can really dive into a little bit deeper and and further future episodes hopefully if we get that far to to have a a a real kind of um look at how there's a there's a a, an unmet need from the from consumers perhaps that they're they're hungry for uh, information they're hungry for detail they're hungry hungry for to be educated about this amazing drink you know they, they they want you know that's why they have the cask numbers on the on the bottle labels you know it's for it's for those geeks that really want to know all the minutiae of what it is that makes up this amazing drink, um, and I think there's there's a there's a real kind of sway towards people looking out for provenance. I mean, if you if you look at anything, if it's whether it's beer or any drinks or or food, everybody's interested in provenance these days, and everybody wants to know where's my food coming from, where's my drink coming, where's my clothes coming from, where's you know that it's all about provenance and finding out about things and being a bit more being a bit more of an educated um, consumer, I think. So that might be the, the the genesis of that divergence of the people who make stuff want to make it and not really give the game away too much, and they can sell stuff then, and and you know they can get away with a little bit of smoke and mirrors. Um, so there might be a little bit of that going on. Yeah, I I think you're right. It's a distinct move from the generic to the specific. Ah. As maybe, well, it, well, let's not make any mistake. The the majority of whiskey sales remain blends, and if your job as a blender is to make a product that is relatively consistent over a number mm-hmm. of years, year in year out, you know, over decades, then really getting into the those minutiae aren't necessarily what you want to do. But at the other end of that, you have single malts in terms of whiskey have become an increasing part of the market again still the minority by some some significant degree the minority yeah oh yeah but picking up those those malts and of themselves get people interested in different varieties and variations of those particular whiskies then what you get you are moving along that continuum then from the general to the specific how come these flavors ended up in my glass as people have begun to enjoy malts a little bit more it becomes more intriguing to understand the specifics of the taste the experience in one glass to the next you mm-hmm. may have an independent two different bottlings one independent one propriety bottling or two independent bottlings of, of apparently the same whiskey that tastes quite radically different and I, I think that's where 
the the move to the more specific away from the, the generic um the, the, there's there's an argument to be seen to be seeing where that that interest emerges from yeah yeah but as we were we were talking the other day and you'd you had um kind of sat down and calculated how many different steps there might be that could play a part how many different steps in the pro in the whiskey production process there might be that could play a part in the creation of a particular flavor profile and you and you you calculated something like 50 so there are many many steps in the, in the production process that um that can have an effect but still we have to cast our eye on the fact that there's only three ingredients so yeah maybe it's worthwhile just taking a moment to to think why barley why all those years ago we would have irish and scottish distiller farmers um turn into the process of distillation with their with their grain why would that happen or even why is barley here in scotland and why is it grown in ireland it's you know it seems to be a, a crop that thrives in the in that climate it's something that the 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 farmers of the time would have been at risk of losing some of their stock over the winter if it was getting moldy or if it was being uh, infested by vermin then they would look to to um, safeguard their their crop and their um, their stock by turning it into whiskey um, and thereby further on down the line um, imbuing it with added value so yeah I just wanted to kind of touch on that a really a, a little bit I don't yeah, know if you I, if you sending a not not very um, a, a cliched not very profound mountain climber uh, because it was there <laughs> it's well suited to Scotland's climate and has been a stock food for, for, for Scotland for a long period of time. You know, we made yeah. bannocks out of it. Yeah. Well, and made beer, and beer becomes a, well, it is in itself a bit of added value, but making it into whiskey adds, you know, greater value as well. So, yeah. That, you know, the starting point is, yeah, we had some good stuff to make to make whiskey from. And, and also, it seems that um, it's a fairly ordinary grass, really barley although the, the it's the more commercial barleys now are are probably quite different from the original stuff of both beer barley and it's all its different shapes and sizes but um the the starting point was was just some grass that by its very nature is a uh, prone to mutation so there are lots of varieties around you know that, that are that are available now and it seems uniquely suited to, to scottish weather and whether you're in the so-called fertile lands of the, the east coast or whether you're on the damp windy headlands of iowa yeah i i wasn't fully aware i'd kind of had a little bit of a i'd heard the, the phrases spring barley and winter barley but I, I didn't really kind of pay them any attention and i wasn't really aware of what the differences were and it's maybe pertinent to our discussion to be aware of spring barley being a a, a, a different variety to that which is sown in the winter um so i've been doing a little bit of reading and seems that uh, spring barley is the one that the distillers really want to use it has all the characteristics that, that are required and so 75 percent of the barley that's sown in scotland is spring barley and the winter barley um i think they might use some of that for grain distilling for your grain distilleries maybe there's a little bit of that in there and um, but it, 
that will also go into animal feed. So about 50 to 60% of the whole of the Scottish barley output, about 50% of that is for animal feed. So it's not all for brewing and distilling. And there's there's also differences in there between the different barleys that are used for brewing and, and, and varieties that are used for distilling because they need it. They need different um chemical components and it needs to be a different makeup of grain yeah, yeah. so it's it's a major it's, it's a major kind of um, it's a major crop yeah, I, th- I think just the reality of the scottish winter isn't um means that winter barley doesn't doesn't make that much sense in terms of for, of for the soil. it's not going to arrive at the qualities and I, I, I think from what i was reading there's only there's, there's, there's only one barley variety is actually authorized or, or is on the national list for distilling or brewing can be planted in the late and you know in the late autumn early winter yeah and will come to ripen um in in the in the late spring so it's maybe more testament to just how long and dark scotland's winters are nothing <laughs> <laughs> nothing's <laughs> growing <laughs> readily available but and and i i thought this when i was reading i was like well it'd be these are nice nice comparisons to have that there's something about scotland's climate and even its soil, actually, the, the soil is cold over the winter, so there's not much insect or pest activity, because that, that's when we're drinking the whiskey, yeah. and then the spring comes and we're sowing the barley to be making the whiskey later in the autumn. That well, you wouldn't be drinking it right away. But right. You get you get what I'm saying about the the notion that actually you see out the winter by drinking what you've made over the summer. That's right. Yeah, it's, it, it sustains you through the. Through the harsh winter months. Well, although I quite enjoy whiskey during the summer, I definitely it might just be my own sense that actually whiskey feels a wee bit it suits the winter. It does, yeah, yeah, very much. Or maybe maybe younger, brighter whiskies <laughs> suit the summer better. I don't know. I'll, I'll test that one out. Put that down the list for yeah. Is there such a summer whiskey? Let's 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 put that to the test. Definitely. So, uh, in terms of the when the distillers are are um, are wanting their barley, they're looking for a high alcohol yield. But I never really kind of gave much thought to what the farmer needs out of this. Now, the farmer, his his yield that he wants isn't anything to do with alcohol. His his yield is how many tons per acre he can get. So there's a there's a little bit of a, a conflict of interest there. Um, there's kind of there's negotiations to be had if the if the farmer feels that he's um, wanting to grow a particular variety that might provide him with more tons of grain per acre and therefore Im- improve his profits, but that might not be the the particular variety that the distiller wants the farmer to grow. The distiller might want variety, another variety that is producing more litres of alcohol per tonne. So there's a little bit of a little kink in the road there that, that would have to be negotiated. I don't know how much it ever really plays a part in any negotiations that go on between distillers and, and farmers. But, um, you know, that's just something I'd, I'd never really kind of considered before, that what the farmer wants and what the distiller wants are not always exactly the same thing. And in looking into it, I was uh, I was looking at different varieties and just to, put this point in context an acre of golden promise barley would yield or it's calculated and recorded that it, it would yield two tons per acre but uh, growing a, 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 a an acre of optic barley would give you three tons so there you go there's a 
something that the farmer would obviously be very aware of, but then he would have to balance that against the distiller's needs and how does he have a customer at the end of the day that wants Golden Promise or does he have a customer that wants Optic Barley? It's also that those those negotiations don't necessarily happen at a distiller to farmer level per se. There's, there's a, there are regional places to those trade-offs are, are located you know, in the, the maltsters organisations who will gather in malt over the year yeah. and, so, and then sell that on. So the, the, there are agents in the process, if you like. Yeah, the, the supply chain is not directly farmer then distiller, perhaps. Sometimes I, I presume it, it, it may uh, well I, be. I, yeah, I think there, there probably are still some more prosaic negotiations or relationships like that with, with particular farms growing particular varieties of barley for particular distillers. Yeah. But in general, it's still through the malt producing organisations. Sure. And so there was a, a question was posed and, and his name will crop up again uh, throughout this discussion. So we may as well start talking about Mark Rainey just now, given that he's pretty much, as far as I can see, at the forefront of uh, the vanguard of championing terroir and barley so I, I, I recall him making statements along the lines of can we call it Irish whiskey he's in Ireland now making whiskey in Waterford can we call it Irish whiskey if it's not made with Irish barley and I think the same thing we could pose the same question of scotch whiskey if it's if it's supposed to be Scottish scotch whiskey can we say that if it's been distilled from uh, barley imported from Denmark or Germany or France or England or even as far away as Australia? Yeah, well, that's a critical question, isn't it? Because there are all of those possibilities for importing. It's an international market. Scotland will export as much as, uh, you know, won't export as much as it imports, but, but the Malts Association are, they're a big enough body to have that kind of power. Mm. And they themselves actually set themselves up to be a counter to to the legislature, to malt taxes that arose at the time. Um, but I think in the process, uh, was it the, the what is whiskey cases in the early 1900s that... Well, it led to uh, the Royal Commission. Yeah, so there were discussions in about 19, no, about 1909 about the what is whiskey when there was a discussion about could blended whiskey be, or could grain whiskey be whiskey, or could blended whiskey be whiskey. And there were some discussions then about could Scotch whisky only come from Scotch barley, but those those arguments weren't sustained. So as I understand it, so even though at the time there would be maltsters who were buying locally, or even taking it to the degree that certainly Rainey did at um, Brookladdy about seeking out particular fields, mm-hmm. that, that was going on. But instead, the the generic, the general survive rather than the specific so those those arguments were up for debate in the early 20th century but it was a much more general outcome in terms of understanding that scotch whiskey could be a mixture of blending grain it could be grain whiskey it could be malt whiskey yeah i was i was reading also while we're talking about the provenance of the ingredients used can we call it scotch whiskey if it's if it doesn't have if it's got ingredients in it that, that don't originate in scotland um, the SWA, the Scots, Scotch Whiskey Association, I was, lo- I was having a wee look at their uh, technical note about cereals and it says, quote, 
the industry's specific serial requirements are provided for, preferably in Scotland. So there is a there's an acknowledgement there that they would like it to be Scottish barley, but there's no there's no compunction. There's there's no legislation in place to 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 enforce that. Well, I wonder if that's a there's a pragmatic sense at the centre of that that that's covering for when the yields in Scotland aren't as high as they could be. Yeah. Uh, um, you know that our, our weather isn't always the best. There are there have been those indifferent summers we've had where the snow been mm. much light and there's been quite a lot of damp in the air. I, I wonder if that's a pragmatic response to that is to acknowledge that well, whilst we prefer Scots barley and Scotch whiskey, it's not always possible. Yeah. And I wonder also then if we actually could provide if, if Scotland has the the agricultural resources to provide a hundred percent of the barley for the Scotch whiskey industry. I don't, I've not done the calculations. I don't know where I would start with that, but I just wonder, is it even possible? Not something I'm expecting you to have a, a well, concrete I'm answer for. Really, you know, I, I don't have the exact figures on my fingertips. Sure, <laughs> sure but, uh, certainly along the way in reading this, you weren't getting any sense that the barley supply was in doubt. Yeah. You no, know, uh, there were other, other forces at play that meant that 100% of Scottish barley didn't go, or or that Scottish whisky wasn't made from 100% of Scot- Scottish barley. And uh, you know, certainly writers, you know, very esteemed writers like Charles McLean, certainly in in, in his book, uh, I think just a very simple one called Malt Whisky, he, he was very clear that Scotland produces enough barley to make all the whisky. Now, there's a caveat on that, in that that, that particular book wasn't even written in, in this century. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, and there's been a lot of change since, uh, I think, uh, 1989, the book came out. So there's been a fair amount of change in what is, what, 31 years. So. But then I would imagine that there's been a fair amount of change in, in the production of barley as well. But it's still to a level of a claim that, it, to all intents and purposes, about 90% of of all Scotch whisky has Scottish barley at, at its source. Yeah. Now, what? What? I, how do? How do you pick that apart? How? How do you go? <laughs> how do you become the barley police to sort that out? No. And it's certainly not the first. Um, in in many, one of our many, I'm sure you you two have, have, have visited lots of distilleries, and it's not the first of stood in that said, "Oh, there's the barley on the floor here," and oh, and that's as specific as I'll get. It's, from Norfolk okay yeah how does that make it and, and like asking those questions how does that make it scotch yeah. um well because it's what comes out the other end is scotch true true it's it's, it's a it's a little bit of an anomaly that um who knows what well, I'm quite interested to see if if any of the machinations of those great guys over in Waterford will have or and also in in other distilleries in Ireland, um, whether they are in a position where they can shake up the the Irish whiskey technical file and maybe get some legislation on the books that might safeguard that particular topic. It might you know in the future we might see that Irish whiskey is only to be distilled using Irish barley. I don't know, but it's that's it's all up in the air, I suppose. But okay, if you wanted to start a distillery, if you even wanted to do something like 
the guys up in Dornoch are doing on a really small scale. I'm sure that they, you have to get to know every every item of the, the whole procedure and, and get to know what's going on. Maybe even if you wanted to be somebody like Colhoman and you want to get to know, you know, how you, if you're a farmer, you have to know how you're going to grow the barley, what you have to do. So I was looking into that and just looking at the, the, the process of growing it and plowing it, tilling it and looking at how uh, there's various different ways in which you can treat um you can work up the the seed beds and, and agitate the soil to get it ready for for sowing. Yeah, so yeah, it's I, not, I, not an inert process, is it? No, I mean I think there's perhaps we, as much as we have enjoy a glass of whiskey and we go, oh yeah, that's you know it's, it's distilled from barley and yeast and it's water and all that. I don't know. Do we do we really kind of spend any time thinking about you know how this was grown and. I'm not saying I do, you know, more than anyone else, but it just I just enjoyed looking into this and, and seeing, okay, if I was, how do you grow barley? Just how how does it happen? Yeah, that was that was quite interesting to find out about if they're sowing it and how that happens. They're making, you know, they're they're planting hopefully about 300 plants per square meter, and then you're looking at taking soil samples and seeing how the soil composition is. Is working? Does it need fertilised and all that kind of stuff? Maybe that's just getting a bit too, a bit too geeky with it. But no, I, I, I don't think so because all of that plays into what is going to lead to the quality of the barley. Because if I understand the barley process rightly, that there's a particular expectation of quality of of the grain when it comes out. Mm-hmm. Uh, it will have a high starch content and a low nitrogen content and that nitrogen is affected by the amount of fertilizer that you might put on the ground if you're a farmer mm-hmm. so it's a clearly a careful balance between having the crop develop in itself but also not to overwork it in such a way that it then isn't of sufficient quality that you can actually make it into whiskey sure and um, i want i mean i i i know there are particularly rigorous uh quality processes for the, for the maltsters when they think about setting sitting down to what the the type of barley that they want they don't want barley that's got mixed varieties in it they don't mm-hmm. want barley that you know that the husks of strain off straight off them and 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 they also want and and they also don't want um they want the seeds themselves they don't want those the wee hairs at the top the ons so what your the expectation is that 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 those varieties of barley come through at a fairly high quality so there's a a definite expectation really that in terms of producing whiskey that the the barley is going to be pretty high quality it's going to have the right moisture levels and and not have any other kind of underlying mold or anything like that mm-hmm. that will affect inevitably will affect the taste of it well will it affect the taste <laughs> well it might it, affect, it will affect the taste of the whiskey that you're distilling or it might affect the the, the, the process further down the line oh, it, it, it might it might not mash as well or it might be it might have a, a character that is not sought by the distiller it might have some characteristic that it's un, unwanted yeah so that, reading into that then we're, we're we're looking at 
different barley varieties have different characteristics. As I was saying earlier on, that, that acre of Golden Promise was given the farmer two tonnes, but a, an acre of uh, Optic was given the farmer three tonnes. So all these different varieties, I, I, I wasn't aware how, just how many varieties there were and, and, and how, how much they change, how, how frequently they change, how frequently you might find farmers switching from one variety to another variety. So I, look, I looked into the seed production and it's amazing the the, the guys who are, are 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 putting money and effort into developing new strains of barley apparently there's i was reading loads of different figures between 10,000 and 50,000 different strains of barley in existence and only a small number of them are are actually recommended for use in brewing and distilling um but to develop one particular variety might take up to 15 years they might spend nine to 11 years on selection of different traits and crossbreeding and testing once they've got what they think is a, a viable variety though it has to go or it doesn't have to go but it can go for um two years of testing on the on the national list trial and a very small proportion of the of the barley varieties that are tested on that two-year trial only a small proportion of them eventually are deemed viable and make it through to being added to the recommended list that's produced by the Association of Maltsters. And from that recommended list, the distillers and the farmers will have a discussion about what what they're going to be planting and sowing next year and what that's going to be bringing to the distillers. And they might... If you're spending 15 years developing a strain, it might take upwards of one million pounds of investment to get that happening. So that, that was something that, as much as I never thought about the farmers, I never even thought about the guys who are making the, 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 the barley, the varieties that are going to be viable, that can still be used in such times as climate change is having an effect. So they're going to have to take into consideration the, the temperature fluctuations that are forecast, um, the weather patterns that are forecast. Yeah, I mean, thanks to these guys putting their putting their time and effort and money into it, there is barley available to be grown and, and, and barley available to be distilled and turned into whiskey, which we maybe don't often raise a glass to. So here's to the here's to the seed merchants. <laughs> that, 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 that's quite a contrast, isn't it? Between that, that's such a rigorous process to to find the, the barley. That's best, and similarly, I, I too had a wee look at those lists, and you could see names that you recognise had had come and gone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You mentioned Golden Promise earlier, and I, I can remember drinking Golden Promise beer back in the day because well, it was it was supposed to be the new it was New Jerusalem of barley, but it too is it's come and gone. It's be, it's no longer as or it's much more vulnerable to disease than it was then, and. I, I I think it also adds as as another layer. If these are very rigorous testing processes, yet if there are such high standards, and compare that to an international market, so if there's barley coming in from America, or Russia, mm-hmm. you know, Australia, or or Denmark, even is is maybe closer to home, there's still those are still quite exacting quality expectations. And then, well, it, how how do you send that back if it doesn't quite? <laughs> meet the mark and so it, there are tensions all the time here you know so you get the sense that malts are saying well actually it's not the provenance it doesn't matter where it where the barley comes from it's much more about the specification uh-huh. but that doesn't necessarily rest easily both for those reasons about well like 
well, what happens if this international barley doesn't make the spec? But um, on the other hand, how much Scottish barley can make the spec? But it comes back to that national list, doesn't it, about the, the varieties that are agreed as the best varieties for, for distillation. And I, I had a quick look at that, and, and I thought what I was surprised by was that the barley variety, I think it was Popino, mm-hmm. that I've been on the longest, was authorised in 2010. You know, so it's only the, you know, the, the oldest barley on there, octogenarian barley, is only 10 years old. I have to confess, until we got our geek on and yeah. got really deep on this, I hadn't really spent that much time wondering whether it was optic or concerto or those kind of things. But to when you're faced with the reality of that, you can see how things are both, there's a lot of investment in terms of developing new barley strains, but also it moves very quickly. Because it's re- really dynamic. Things are changing all the time. I wonder then also if there's a tension about how moving to these new varieties, what the movement is about and you know, what, what people are developing. Because you, you imagine that this happens in other areas of food production. Is that movement in terms of yield or sugar content in the barley or, or starts to sugar, those kind of things. The outcome of that, does that mean we have varieties of barley that have a high yield but don't necessarily have a lot of flavour congeners? I'm comparing this to thinking about when you go down the supermarket in February and there's raspberries and strawberries there. Well, they're there in the shelf, but, uh, you know, buyer beware because they're both red, but I'm not sure they taste... Oh, I'm, going, I'm going to get all patriotic here. I'm not sure they taste like a, a Scottish raspberry sure. in August or September. You yeah, know? yeah. I think, yeah, well, they're seasonal, seasonal produce and they're going to taste at their best when it's the right season to to taste them um but i think what you're what you're saying there about consistency and low costs i think just by the very nature of having those factors as the drivers so if you're a distiller you're looking for especially if you're a huge distiller i I expect it's maybe even more of a driver if you've got huge amounts of output and you're using huge amounts of um grain and it's you know it's a really kind of finance intensive activity you're spending a lot of money you're trying to make a lot of money Uh, if consistency and low costs are are your factors then i think by if those are your drivers by the very nature of that there's a, a reduction of flavor being an aspect of your consideration now, you're never going to get any distillers to, that are going to say that, but if you're in the business of being in business, you have to balance the books. So you, you have to make money, you have to perhaps keep the shareholders happy. Um, so are you going to, are you going to, are you going to squeeze your own profits for the sake of maybe amping up the flavor a little bit at the end when you produce your, you know, your 10, 15 year old whiskey? I don't know. Maybe I'm being a bit too cynical. No, I, I think there are people out there who have got an option to do that. And they're not necessarily the, the obvious candidates. They're not obviously the big guys who are making the maximum profits, who are, whose whiskies are right in the top 10, mm-hmm. 20 selling whiskies in, in the world. You know, it's, 
I imagine that it's relatively smaller people who are in the position to take greater risks. And certainly over the years, experienced uh, had uh, that retort from from brand ambassadors who are from from bigger organisations who are a little bit hamstrung by the fact that they have produced a consistent whiskey that's highly desirable all over the world. Now, actually, in just talking that through, I'm not sure that holds any water, that argument, because <laughs> surely if you've got your top-notch product, you can say, yeah, top-tastic stuff, enjoy this if you like. Here, we've got some random guy down here in the corner. Maybe one allows the other, I don't know. I'm, I'm not a marketing expert. My, my, my interests are about tasting whiskey rather than the, the whole machinations of how it is of, of the economics of it but, sure uh, but there there are there are twists and turns to be had and enjoyed along the way and um, some work some don't uh, yeah. i suppose is is the outcome of that I, th- I think it's just it's it's um i think it's worthwhile exploring all these potential kind of avenues that these factors that might play a part in the resulting uh, liquid that, we're, that we drink. It's, um, I, I'm sure that consistency and cost definitely play a part in 99% of the whiskey that's made, more than 100% of the whiskey that's made, because they're not in the business of, of losing money and they don't want to make life difficult for themselves by, by having a completely inconsistent product that they're, that they're dealing with when they're making it. Although you can, there's contrast, there's a high value whiskey out there, Macallan, certainly for a long period of time, argued on a number of cases actually has been quite niche. They sought out uh, cast from Hereth in terms of their 100% sherry uh, maturation. And I, I know that that changed over the years, but also they were, certainly my understanding of, of um, provenance in terms of barley, they were very upfront about talking about Golden Promise over oh. a long period of time, that it was a particular quality i think of oiliness that it added to the mccallan spirit and i would imagine that meant it actually carried then the sherry qualities very well but i'm not sure golden promises there is their number one go-to guy these days did you not have, did you have some insights about that i don't have any info about particular varietals being used uh, at mccallan I, I did read recently that Golden Promise was, as you say, seen as a as a as a favourite and a, a long-standing variety of uh, favour in with Macallan. Uh, also, Glengoyne, I read that they they were using Golden Promise for a long time. So maybe there's something to to look at there. Are there similarities in Glengoyne's output that compare with Macallan's, and you can you can tease out the similarities in the spirit. I, I don't know. I'm not. A, I'm not a, a Macallan aficionado, and uh, I don't have any Glengoyne in the house at the moment either. So yeah, the, we'll, uh, we'll need to do a, a taste test at some point. Yeah, well, maybe maybe there's something in that, but I think we're what we've got to the core here. There's, there's a kind of contradiction and a, maybe a bit of a paradox at the at the heart of this is like either and a barley matters or it doesn't matter. Yeah, and. I think I think I know what side of the line I'm drawn to, you know, and that if one of the one of the most successful malt whiskey makers in the world, McAllen, says our barley matters, whatever they're using now, then certainly in the past, Golden Promise was seen as 
very intimate in terms of its relationship with the McAllen spirit at the time. Yeah. Over the years, probably between us, we've tasted a few uh, Springbank local barleys, and they they have they have a distinction about them that is that's different from the you know the, the regular Springbank. You know, mm-hmm. and it, it goes through the same process as far as we know. Although, don't ask me to explain the two and a half times distillation. <laughs> maybe we can all bone up on that for the next one. We'll um, do a whole series on that. <laughs> they, that would be really interesting, though, to to um, to even just taste the new make from Springbank and the Springbank local barley and see if, if there's a, a discernible difference. I was over at the good fortune to, to go over to Waterford um, in May last year and was was going around the distillery with Neil the Brewer. Uh, absolutely fantastic time. Those those guys over there, are, are, I, I believe they're going to really revolutionise things in Ireland and around the world with with what they're doing. But I was I was fortunate enough to to taste um, new make spirit of different varieties, different barley varieties, and it's all grow, it's all put through the same process, and they can trace absolutely every single minute of the of the of the process from where from where the, the barley's grown to what the weather was like when it was harvested <clears throat> what the weather was like all the way through it was growing um it's all stored separately and distilled separately and what was astonishing i think was tasting the different barley varieties as new make and there is a difference but but then your the naysayers would say yeah but that'll all those different flavor elements will be um subdued during the, the maturation process and you won't be able to taste it you won't be able to taste those differences but in some ways we're, we're not there yet are we because um well we are and we aren't however i think the conventional wisdom that we were trying to unpick was that actually the distillation process was too fierce mm. to be making any difference in the outcome of whatever barley you use and clearly you 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 know by your own tasting you've you've found that different mm, arguably the local barley at springbank it was different it's definitely different to the core springbank 10 12 or, or, or whatever it's definitely different it's, although and the slightly older ones are different again and the old the old style labels but there's also and there's other distilleries doing their own thing uh daft mill farm their, or you know grow their own barley have it malted and then returned back to the distillery. I'm not quite sure what variety they use. Conversely, um, on Isla, you've got, for the 100% Isla bottlings, you've got Kilhoman. Mm-hmm. And I was picking up that in the in the last couple of years, they've used, in 2018, you used Concerto and Laureate. And at the the new make, Concerto was much more consistent with, with I think, regular Kilcoman, that it was, it was kind of citrus, citrus floral notes that they'd sort out. But Laureate was much more malty and cereal. In 2019, they grew Concerto and Sassy. So it's clearly like the kind of the standard, if you like, the, the core range of the, such a concept of, of barley was Concerto. And the actual, the article I picked up on was, was, uh, was published on on their website before um, the outrun of of Sassy to see if there was any difference again from from those two varieties. And I mean, and and you know, 
Cocoma went through anything that outrageous. They they picked up these varieties from from the malts or from the approved list. They're grown on the island in the in the fields around the distillery, and it will only be used in their one hundred percent Isla brand. And it has does have a lower peating level, but they were saying that that's just because if they were to try and get it to any higher, it would knock out the whole schedule. It would take too long uh-huh. on the island, so they they couldn't actually peat it to any higher level without knocking out the whole schedule. But what what was very clear from 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 them is that they they thought there would of course there will be differences in the outcome, especially if they fell in bourbon. You know, maybe less so in the more um, perhaps more intense flavours of wine and, and sherry cask. And but it also gave them the opportunity, not necessarily then to try and iron out those differences in terms of vattens of different casks, but actually to go the op- go to the opposite to actually have almost like single varietal expressions of barley that was grown on the island. That has a similar chain to what's been on at Waterford and. Surprise, surprise, Matt Rainier, Anthony Rose, both, I'm pretty sure both their backgrounds are in wine. Yeah. And also, I'm, I'm pretty, and I'm also, I'm absolutely sure, certain that Brookladdy were very supportive of Cocoman in, in the early years. I think the early bottlings of Cocoman were done at Brookladdy. Yeah. Before they got their own bottle. So, oh, oh, kind of goes around, a bit round of a circle, but clearly there are, there are different ways to think about your ingredients here. I think uh, it's. I think it's. It's great that Coloman are acknowledging the the need and the desire for people to find out more about the whiskey. So we we want to know what varieties you're using. We want to know how you know. We want to know the peating levels. We want to know what you're doing differently on each distillation run. We want to know where your cut points are. We want to know what you're putting it into. Um, I mean, it's just we live in an information age, and everybody's really thirsty for information especially about this drink that we love so i think it's really admirable that that Coloma are going well yeah okay so let's put it on our blog let's 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 tell everybody what the hell we're doing and have a conversation about that because it can do as far as i can see it can do nothing but good because it, it just there's no there's no there's no hiding there's no smoke and mirrors there's nothing to nobody's trying to pull the wool over anyone's eyes and it just leads everybody to a more enlightened place of understanding how it's made knowing what goes into it, knowing the, the efforts that people go to, to to make it as good as it can possibly be. Yeah, so it's interesting that you mentioned Nicole Homan. I was reading Jeffords, Andrew Jeffords' great book, Pete Smoking Spirit, and just in relation to barley, I was I was looking at some comments that he, he, he was actually speaking with. I don't know if you heard of Mark French. So he, he says Mark French of Rockside Farm. I don't know, See, Mark French. He's owner of Rockside before Coleman brought it over. Bought it he, over. He, he must have been. So um, he was talking about growing barley, and he's saying that the soil is blown sand. So as anyone who's been to uh, Coleman, been to Isla, will know that it's you know just a couple of hundred yards from Macker Bay on a beautiful beach. But Mark French is saying that the, the soil's it's, it's not great for, for growing barley. Uh, which is actually a good thing. So he says, um, for molten barley, that's actually quite a good thing if you try to grow barley in high rainfall areas um, on fertile soil. You end up with too much nitrogen, which is just what you don't want for malting. 
And then he says, it would be nice to grow golden promise, but you'd have to spray it such a lot, its resistance has broken down completely. So there you go, your golden promise no longer is viable because its its resistance has broken down. And that's why I suppose we need these new varieties being generated. And he's able to grow decent barley on poor soil, which is quite anomalous, I suppose. It's a bit strange. But there's there's also a a comparison there. There's also a, a, a link there with growing when you mentioned Anthony Wills and Mark Rainey both having a, a wine background. So um, growing grapes in Burgundy, the soil's not great there. I mean, it's not really mega fertile soil at all. Can be not in fertile great. soil makes good wine. Yeah, so there you, there's, there's parallels to be drawn. But also in, the, in, in Jefford's book, he's, um, he's talking about um, in 1844, Colhoman Bay was home to about 5,000 people in that year. So he's got, he's got figures here. Just to point out, I just thought it was astonishing that this small little area of Isla, which isn't huge anyway, but this small area of Isla, produced in 1844, 52 tonnes of barley, 61 tonnes of oats, 50,000 barrels of potatoes, 254 tonnes of rye grass hay, 76 tonnes of meadow hay, and on and on and on. And whenever I go there, I always think, this must have been buzzing this place with so much activity and so many people and able to sustain the place as well the so the there you get a sense of how sustaining that area of isla was no i'm, I'm there now i'm i'm in the road around loch gorm and i'm <laughs> taking we wander up up to Colhoman and uh, i i and also i think there's a contrast to me that when you talk about production contrast about the maltsters or the drive to high yield, we might argue higher profit, in unpicking that those plantings of barley for 100% Isla malt. I think there was a number, from what I was reading, there was a number of things at play. One in particular was about the Isla climate, you know, so let's be looking at, there wasn't any of these uh, optics, 300 million tonnes per 10 centimetre square or anything like that. <laughs> It wasn't going to be like that on Isla. That um, actually, they in the first thing got to a, a variety that will cope with Isla weather. It's windier, it tends to be a bit cooler, and it tends to be a bit wetter. And they've they've also got a shorter growing season on Isla. Not so much because of you know the season's shorter per se, but they've got they've got to plant late so that because they'll wait for the geese to go. That's right. Yeah. Well. You don't want to be giving up your barley to the geese, you know. They're taking that elsewhere. And it meant that their yield was about um, half a tonne less per acre. And also, if I remember rightly, that barley produces like 20 to 30 fewer litres of alcohol per tonne compared to the mainland malt that they can ship in or might be... I I can't remember if if Cochomen get their stuff done at Portelling. So, but... All of that, you can see they're in control, uh, Kilhoman in control of that whole process. And I don't want this to be a Kilhoman hagiography. I just think they're a really good example of how small means you've, you've got a degree of flexibility. And, and 100% Islet is not this is is not necessarily their core expression. You know, yes. they're, they're able to put a number of, of expressions out there. It's a good example of how the smaller folk have got a degree of flexibility People will build up a trust in it, in 
what they're offering. I know that they're getting a degree of quality, but maybe a different bit of, bit of variety. Yeah. And all, it just plays into that whole need for provenance. And I think we, we might see over the next couple of years the, 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 the terroir concept being rolled out appropriately and also quite substantially inappropriately and, and bastardised. I mean, we've already seen it being emblazoned on on different bottles with no real legitimacy when it's it's, it's not being warranted, being used with some degree of misunderstanding or perhaps even deliberate misunderstanding. So, But I think the, the whole provenance idea and information, um, we're going to see that really being a strong focus in, if not marketing, then definitely in consumers' approach to to whiskey and, and, and knowing what they're knowing what they're buying, knowing what they're drinking, and wanting to find out more about it. I think the you know for all over the last maybe ten or more years, there's been a, an emphasis on the quality of, of wood for maturation. I think you have you've got to give some credit for you know the Claddy certainly were maybe through necessity they had they took a different tack because there might be an argument to be made about the quality of wood that they inherited from the previous owners. Sure, you can't. Um, Knock, definitely. There are three three ingredients here, in terms of the what we've got in our glass, which is you know water, yeast, and barley, and they, amongst others, are putting barley front and center here. Yeah. For us to decide whether there's a difference. Sure, I think um, maybe if you if you look at the long view, that might be a a, a logical step. You you can see you know hindsight's twenty twenty, obviously. But I think maybe if you pivot and look look ahead, I think the the, the provenance and the, the need for information is, is going to eventually lead to where you're going to see emblazoned on the side of the bottles what particular uh, strain of yeast is being used. And you know, oh, we're taking that to another podcast now, Stuart. Yep, <laughs> we're definitely going to have to do one about that. You know, I can I can I can see with the proliferation of distilleries that are surely going to come on stream. I don't know how many, what is it, there are going to be 130 distilleries producing fairly soon. That's not counting the... That's not, that's not counting English distilleries, that's not counting the Welsh distilleries or the Irish distilleries. They're all vying for your attention and how are they going to do that? Well, they can't just say, we, we make great whiskey, here's a 12-year-old, here's an 18-year-old. And everybody's thirsty for knowledge and want to find out, okay, you know, oh, I really like that one that was grown with optic barley and used Maori yeast in a semi-lotter mashed on. <laughs> you know? Or me, is that just us? <laughs> no way, you geek. <laughs> I, was, I was reading um, David Sturck's book about Campbelltown and um, there's some great little quotes from the fabled Campbellton Courier uh, which when I was when I was living in Campbellton, one of the the, the the infamous headline one one week, I hope I'm not misremembering, but we talked about it for years afterwards, quite a slow news week, and the headline on the local newspaper was, "Boy smashes window." <laughs> so, uh, that was worthy of the front page, but but um, <laughs> the helicopter out for him. <laughs> Uh, and I, I don't know what came of the boy or the window, uh, other than it was smashed. I don't know if they ever found him. It wasn't me, by the way. Um, <laughs> just 
reading David Sturt's book was great. It just gave a bit of historical insight into what was going on at the, you know, around about the turn of the century in the Campbellton Courier uh, from the 4th of June 1938. They said that Glen Scotia has taken in 350 tonnes of Australian barley. The steamer Ucroft unloaded 450 tonnes of barley in Orkney and then uh, and also 530 casks of whiskey were loaded onto the ship to be stored and warehoused in Campbellton. So even back then, even in, in the 30s, they're, they're taking in barley from the yeah. other side of the world. So yeah, You don't want to be putting all your eggs in the one basket, clearly. <laughs> you know, they're taking in, Campbellton's taking in, Glen Scotia, not Springbank, but Glen Scotia's taking in uh, consignments of, of barley I think, from... I think, I think it's right, and, and, and as always, to be a sceptic, you know, Springbank don't use... Um, don't use Kintyre peat. It's you know it's Highland peat from Inverness. Is it really? Yeah. Yeah. Oh. And you know that, that they're certainly on tour. They're, they're if you go on tour with the Sully, they're quite open about that. Yeah. And they don't seek out Isla peat. Um. I wonder if that that wouldn't have always been the case. In fact, that that was a, another element that was in this article that was reading. You know, they use local coal to fire the stills. There's local entire peat that gets used, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Yeah, but that's interesting. Wonder entire coal that fuel that fueled the stills at times. Yeah. Aye. So, Peter, thanks for uh, you know all your barley chat. It was great. Uh, I hope we can dig deep and explore a little bit more of uh, a little bit more whiskey in the next episodes oh thanks very much Stuart always happy to talk whiskey water, yeast, barley <laughs> what's not to love <laughs> excellent okay um, right so we'll, uh, we'll I'll catch up with you um, probably before episode 2 I hope uh, but I'll definitely catch up with you in episode 2 where I think we might be talking about malting the barley oh I can't wait <laughs> alright take care and I'll see you then all the best and see you next time bye